You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week we go inside the huddle with Opera Festival of Chicago's Emanuele Andrizzi to talk about a work that has paid a steep price for having been written just before Verdi's more famous operas, despite having some of the best music he ever wrote. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Angel Blue has withdrawn from her debut at Arena di Verona. We suspect that if she were still a young artist, she might also have been called, quote, more narcissistic and entitled than ever by the people we are paying to lead us. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe, Stitcher, Spotify, you click follow. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot take, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get that OBS beer coaster for your cold summer beer. You're going to get that OBS lapel pin for your seersucker suit or that summer dress just for sharing your own hot take. Great to have the coal crew back here again ashley is dropping her own voice memo into the show but here we all are having been scattered to the four corners of the globe oliver camacho there you are <laughs> maybe like two corners of the globe um yeah your uh, your rage is palpable so um oh by the way uh, tony from the bronx uh would like his coaster and lapel pin He's been calling us every day. It's yeah. been it really bad, George. It is in the George. mail. It is okay. in the mail. <laughs> okay. That's what they all say, George. The postage is so expensive to the Bronx. I get it. <laughs> Mac, Mac Cummings, you don't even use U.S. Postal Service anymore, probably. Of course not. I'm a millennial. Here we go. How about you, <laughs> entitled. I'm, I'm, I'm entitled to have things be brought to me. <laughs> so, Weston, let me tell you what a stamp is. Oh, I already know what a stamp is. And you know what I also know? I know what a Cubs game is like because you really? after being in Chicago since uh, the year of our Lord, 2016, I finally made it over to Wrigley Stadium this past week. Wrigley and Field? Saw... Wrigley... Yeah, well, I, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's new to me, okay, Oliver? It's new. <laughs> the field is just the green part. The stadium is the whole building, <laughs> the whole complex. <laughs> How how was it, Weston? In, in uh, a word, the Cubs lost, which I'm told is pretty standard. It's two um, words, but but uh, I did get a little hot dog. I had the Garrett's popcorn. It was a real authentic Chicago experience. It was actually a standard size hot dog. Everything just seems little to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I heard that the Cubs actually broke their losing streak. Maybe you gave them a little magic. Uh, well, it didn't. There, it didn't work when uh, when I was yeah, there. Let yeah. me tell you that. But maybe it kicks in a day or two late. <laughs> they got the OBS bump. It just, yeah. you know, it was a little delay. Yeah. It takes 24 to 48 hours for it to show up yeah, in your for, account. For well, editing, good for you, know. you for yeah. going to a, a Cubs game. I'm, of course, back in the U.S. now over my jet lag. had a fantastic trip. If you haven't, go back and listen to the interview with Scott Stroman. If for no other reason than to hear the words cantus firmus spoken in the same sentence as Chicago White Sox. <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened before. Only ever. on OBS. No. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera Festival of Chicago now in its second season here in the Windy City. And they have one production left, Verdi's Il Corsaro. Tickets still available if you are indeed in the second city. 
Oliver sat down with music director Emanuele Andrizzi. My guest today is the music director of the Opera Festival of Chicago, Maestro Emanuele Andrizzi. Maestro Andrizzi, welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you so much for having me with you, Oliver. I'm so glad to have this chat with you today. Yeah, so we talked last year when the festival was brand new, but uh, just for a little bit of history, can you tell us uh, just the origins of this brand new company? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've been in Chicago for many years. Uh, I'm, I'm a conductor. I'm passionate about opera. And after working for so many years with many companies, I realized that in Chicago, many of the operas that I grew up with, particularly from the Italian repertoire, were not really, really produced or presented ever. And I started, you know, uh, you know, figuring, trying to figure out uh, why this was happening and uh, why these companies were not interested in them. So when I realized that uh, there wasn't really, you know, uh, any idea on their part, you know, to start doing, uh, you know, most of the wonderful masterworks that are around that my favorite composers brought from Verdi to Rossini to Donizetti, you name it, I was like, well, maybe I should start, uh, you know, to, to create my own company. And you know, I found a group of great friends uh, in love for Italian opera who were enthusiastic about the idea of uh, having a company just dedicated to do great masterworks uh, that are either never performed or rarely performed in Chicago. And we found a list of works that uh, uh, had never been done before and we started working on that. And we were supposed to start in 2020 and as we all know, 2020 had just happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we opened uh, with a mini festival without any opera, just arias and a few recitals. And then last year, you know, we were uh, brave enough to try to be the first ones on stage, uh, you know, after, you know, the first wave of uh, COVID vaccines. And we were actually lucky. We did uh, uh, two wonderful operas, uh, Il Segreto di Susanna by Wolf Ferrari and Il Tabarro by Puccini and a second show dedicated to Dante's seven, uh, seven Centennial. And the public uh, really loved it. And Arta Barro, you know, got almost more, uh, practically sold out uh, uh, hall. And we got even more excited. And we said, well, our second season shouldn't be any less than this one. So let's try to find something that is even more exciting and a little bigger. And that's when we started thinking about this season. So before we finished talking about last season, uh, I have to say that you had uh, Stephen Powell <laughs> as one of your artists uh, singing in uh, Il Segreto di Susanna, as well as uh, Emily Biersan, who is in her own right, a very important artist. But uh, right out of the gate, uh, you're presenting, you know, some big American names here, uh, which is very impressive for a, a fledgling festival. And um, you continue that tradition this year uh, by engaging uh, Kenneth Tarver for a rare Rossini, uh, would you call it a comedy? I mean, it's not even that, it's sort of a hard comedy. <laughs> it's a pretty dramatic comedy. Uh, and Kenneth Tarver, one of the great bel canto specialists, uh, I've never seen him perform live before. I only listened to his recordings. It's like, oh my gosh, they got Kenneth Tarver. You know, Kenneth is phenomenal, as was Stephen last year. You know, it was so interesting because uh, I knew Kenneth from his recordings too. And uh, when we figured that uh, the most famous of the recordings of Lingano Felice was actually with Kenneth Tarver doing The Duke, I was like, wow, you know, 
should we try to ask him if he would sing for us? And, uh, you know, some people said, hey, you guys are crazy. And they also like, hey, last year, Stephen Powell accepted to sing for, for, for us, as did Emily Burson. And when we asked Ken, Ken was so excited. He was like, I've not sung this opera practically ever on stage. It was an accident that he did a recording just to, to as a run up, you know, uh, because the tenor got sick and uh, none less than Zeta called him to do this wonderful recording. And he said, well, I only sang it for that concert and the recording. And how, how exciting to be singing on the stages. And I've never done a big debut in Chicago. So we killed two birds with a stone, as you say, right? So, <laughs> the, uh, the late Alberto Zeta, the great um, Rossini scholar and conductor. Yep. So... Um, at this point, this is year two of the uh, in-person festival. You've already uh, presented three operas, uh, Il Sergetto di Susanna, Il Tabarro, and L'Ingano Felice. And uh, this current season wraps up with Verdi's Il Corsaro. Of yes. all the Verdi operas to do, <laughs> why Il Corsaro? You know, um, when we started thinking about the repertoire for this year, after having done, you know, a Puccini rediscovery, uh, we started, you know, think, thinking about, you know, Rossini, Donizetti, Bellini, Mascagni. And of course, you know, we were even afraid of mentioning the word Verdi. I mean, Verdi is such a sacred monster for, for you know, opera uh, lovers and for, you know, for Italian musicians. And yet uh, I figured that uh, of the 27 operas that Verdi brought, only a little bunch was ever done in Chicago, which sounded to me so dissonant. And so we said, hey, why don't we try to see if there is one of the Verdi's, uh, you know, early to middle period operas that we might be able to produce. And all of a sudden, uh, our eyes fell on, on, on Corsaro. I mean, maybe it was also because the war, the, you know, had been going through a lot of challenges, you know, from getting uh, out of COVID or again in, and you know, the war in Ukraine that was exploding, all these kind of things. And in Corsaro, there is all of it, all of it. And it seemed like, uh, you know, Verdi was talking about uh, our society in this on these very days, uh, just, you know, 170 years ago. And I've always found Verdi's music to be so, so modern, so present. And the, the, the thematic of the opera just drew my attention. And then I thought, hey, let me listen to the music because it's a music that I know because of the few famous arias and the duets, but I don't know the piece. And then I started studying the score and I was like, wow, this is such, such a fascinating piece, such an incredible piece. I don't understand why people uh, don't do it, but hey, why don't we try to be the first ones to do it in the Midwest? And here we come today uh, before our opening night. <laughs> <laughs> Il Corsaro, the aria that I know, I think that uh, you know, people who are audiophiles like me uh, is Non so le tetre immagini, the uh, aria of Medoro, is it Medoro is the name of the character? Um, so that is clearly uh, in the mold of a great bel canto aria with the um, you know, coloratura passages or the mel mel melismatic passages and the long bel canto line. And even the accompaniment suggests, you know, the the era that it's coming from. Uh, what are some of the other highlights of this score that we can look forward to? Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. That that wonderful beginning 
you know, of Medora follows, uh, you know, just right uh, right away the, the uh, one of the other big areas, you know, which is Tutto Paria Sorridere, which uh, Corrado just sings uh, in 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 the, in the first act, you know, before the very energetic cabaletta. And uh, there are wonderful areas in in this in this work, uh, such as the ones that we just mentioned. Of course, you know, there is uh, uh, Volatalor del Carcere, this incredible. Uh, moment of Gulnara. You know, one of the striking things in this opera is that, uh, you know, in operas, you always have, or most often than not, when you have a seconda donna, the seconda donna is usually a mezzo-soprano. In this opera, we actually have two sopranos, and two sopranos with very similar vocalism, which makes it even more intriguing. And, you know, it's so interesting that Medora for as much as she's practically the opera almost opener and the opera closer, she's, she's not the main female character for the importance that Verdi wants to give through the music, but Gulnara is the actual heroine of, uh, you know, of, uh, of this opera that uh, creates the plot, that creates you know, the jealousy that you know, kills Said, that frees uh, Corrado. And all of the numbers uh, uh, associated with Gulnara are incredible. And she sings uh, two wonderful duets, uh, one with Corrado and one with Said, uh, that are just, you know, uh, you know heartbreaking and eye-opening, uh, you know, into the world that, you know, Verdi is really trying to describe. And at the same time, there are, you know, the, 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 there is uh, this character who's called Said. And he sings also, you know, uh, his own aria and his own cavaletta. And both of them, you know, are, are there to describe a man that is at the same, uh, at the same time, uh, a man in power that thanks God for the power is being given and for the wealth that his people has been given. And at the same time, is the man in love for his slave. And he cannot figure out why she loves the Corsair that has just come to, to save her life. And so it's, uh, it's there is, you know, one moment, uh, one beautiful aria, one beautiful duet after the other, incredible choruses. Again, I'm so happy we rediscovered <laughs> it. It's, it's so exciting. <laughs> I'm sure Verdi doesn't feel like you discovered it, but... <laughs> right, no, we rediscovered it. Because, I mean, if you think, uh, even just looking at the discography of, of this piece, uh, there's not as many recordings as most of the big operas by Verdi. And except, you know, for the, the, the famous recording with, uh, with uh, Jesse Norman, Caballé, and Carreras, there's not many others. And I think that is because uh, it's a difficult opera to cast. It's, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, the cast for that opera was all big stars for that recording, but not all of them were, you know, matching the, the musical style, the vocalism required by this opera. And I think that that played a big role in not having this opera become more loved like other, like, you know, uh, Louisa Miller or, you know, the rediscovery of Macbeth that, that uh, strike me because I think that, you know, Corsaro is uh, at the same musical level and has incredible things that uh, are not present in either of those. So you mentioned uh, the, the cast um, requiring two sopranos. Looking at the roster of artists that you've engaged so far, there seem to be members of the cast who we might call them company members of the festival. And then you have these, what I would consider to be like your guest artists. Uh, who can we look forward to hearing uh, in Il Corsado? And, um, you know, where where did you find these singers who can do 
this type of music. I know you understand the style very much, and you understand the difference between casting a Rossini opera versus casting a Verdi opera, and what are the requirements, uh, especially for the orchestration. Absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, we have been so lucky again. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, uh, uh, Stephen Powell and Kenneth Tarver, Tarver were not just coincidences, but it's maybe us, you know, being lucky to find great singers. And I think, you know, we found again the perfect cast for this. Uh, uh, as you said, you know, we have uh, uh, some guest singers for this one and some house singer, such as, you know, Franco Bopponi, who's our, you know, uh, uh, festival president and was an incredible baritone singing the role of Said. But all the other uh, singers of, uh, you know, singing the, the big roles in this opera are guest artists. We have, uh, uh, of course, you know, I'm, I'm an Italian old style gentleman. So <laughs> I start with, the, with the, the, the two sopranos and we are very pleased to have with us uh, Christine Arand, who's, you know, incredibly tender uh, vocal, vocalism and incredible voice are such a, you know, a, a perfect fit for, for Medora. And, you know, for Gulnara, we have Alejandra Sandroval. And, you know, uh, we knew Christine, I mean, uh, just, you know, I had heard her singing in Chicago many years ago. While we did not know Alejandra, we had auditions and Alejandra was interested in the role. She flew from Atlanta. And I remember the, the, the people that were with me at, the, at her audition, they started crying. Hmm. And I was like, hey, what's going on? And I remember looking at, you know, one of artistic consultants that say, that's she, she is Gulnara. And finally, we were very fortunate to find a wonderful, incredible Stinto tenor, Jose Simerilla for the Corrado role. We have been, uh, you know, we have been, you know, considering various tenors. This, this, is, this is a big role. And the comparison with Carreras, as you mentioned, uh, you know, stays there up front for, any tenor in the world, you know, for a role that, you know, has been recorded by the immense Carreras. And yet, when we heard uh, Jose singing, uh, we're like, uh, well, this is the guy. Let's see if we can uh, get him interested. And when we offered the role, he had never signed the role, of course, and he was like, uh, let me see what this is about. He had the recording, and I think, well, you know, he's brave enough to challenge himself to see if he can be the new Carreras. <laughs> and I think, you know, people will be very happy with that, you know, when they come to see our show. Well, he might be one of the only tenors uh, working that will have learned this role. So <laughs> maybe when when another company gets around to performing it, he will be the person that they call. He so. might. He might. Absolutely. I'm hoping that uh, once we open, uh, uh, you know, the doors uh, onto this incredible opera, many more companies will start uh, uh, you know, reconsidering it. it. It's really an incredible piece. And, uh, and also, you know, it is, uh, it is not one of those very long operas. It's less than 145 minutes of music. So it goes really fast and there is so many emotion, passions happening. And I think that is pleasing for any, any kind of listener. It's such, such, a, such a massive. So lastly, I wanted to talk about uh, the festival's idea of being... Uh, accessible to different communities uh, of Chicago. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was part of the original mission. I'm not sure if if you still are emphasizing this part of the mission, but uh, last year you performed uh, in the Ravenswood community, which is more of a, I guess, a upper middle class part of the city. And then you went down to um, Pilsen mm -hmm. uh, for the Il Tabaro, 
and you presented Puccini in a venue that is known for you know rock and uh, for rock concerts essentially yeah. you know yeah. um, but they have a great they had a great balcony and uh, they had the right size stage this year uh, we heard um, Lingano in Felice uh, at the Athenaeum Theater which uh, yep. is used to putting on operas but the uh, current production of Il Corsaro will take us to Evanston on the campus of Northwestern University. Do you feel like you're going to continue with this? Are you are you looking for a home, or is it good to just b- bounce around? So I think uh, both. So we're both looking for a home uh, for our main productions moving forward, and we still like the idea of uh, having, uh, um, you know, uh, parts of our festival that... Uh, reach out to many parts of the Chicago community. Indeed, uh, um, we're still considered, uh, we consider so many venues actually for these productions uh, for for this season. And for many of them, uh, the main challenge was that uh, unlike last year, uh, most companies had restarted uh, uh, their seasons. So they had, uh, as older companies, they had figured out their availability much earlier than us. And uh, so it was, it was challenging. Even, you know, with Talia, we would love, you know, to go back to, to, to Pilsen. We love the place. It was such an interesting, you know, uh, experience to do an opera. It's nice to drink a beer while you're watching an opera. <laughs> hey, hey, that, that was exactly the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Talia was, was very busy this year, and I'm very happy for them. And uh, they couldn't, you know, fit our schedule for a tech week. And, you know, for an opera such as... Corsaro, we needed a place for a you know larger thing. You know, Corsaro as a as a full chorus, uh, SATP chorus, as uh, extra characters. Tabarro only had uh, you know uh, three main characters and a bunch of smaller characters. Uh, Corsaro has three times as many plus uh, still small size chorus. You, you need chorus. dressing rooms, basically. Absolutely, <laughs> we need dressing rooms and we need space for everything that looks like a sale, like. Uh, Anything that you'll see in the incredible set uh, that that we have for this for this wonderful production by Amy Hutchinson. Amy Hutchinson, uh, one of our favorites here in Chicago, has been on a guest on the podcast, so we're so happy to see more of her work. Maestro Andrizzi, before I let you go, I know that you're literally in the middle of rehearsals. Uh, we do uh, like to liken ourselves to um, sports radio. So here's your chance to either draw a metaphor to the team that you've assembled uh, for uh, Il Corsaro, or maybe just shout out one of your favorite athletes that is playing right now. Uh, you know, if I make, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm Italian, of course, so in my head is all about soccer. Good, good. Uh, you mean football? You know, if, I, if I can make a comparison uh, with what you, you know, is, uh, you know, the, 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 the opera Corsaro, with what I've done many times, it really reminds me a lot of, you know, those uh, uh, five versus five uh, soccer games uh, that I used to do in my, in my parish and uh, with uh, all the boys fighting on stage uh, and all the families uh, and uh, girlfriends and boyfriends outside looking at us saying, well, you know, these guys, this is a loss. Oh no, words, it's gonna be a tie. It's soccer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happens, I think, in this opera. Nobody's happy at the end. It looks like one of those big ties and the public goes back home and it's like, well, but you know, that was a great, good, good, good game. There was a lot of get great playing, that penalty though, 
I hate referees. And that's gonna, what's going to happen with this verdict. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Maestro Andrizzi, toy, toy, toy for this weekend for the Prima, which is on Friday uh, at Khan Auditorium uh, on the campus of Northwestern University, and then another performance on Sunday. Thank you for coming to Opera Box Score. Thank you so much for having me, Oliver. I really appreciate it. And please come to see this wonderful opera, everybody. You're going to be super happy. Non so le tetre immagine, the most famous tune from the opera Il Corsaro, sung by Montserrat Caballé, one of the best recordings. You can see this opera here in Chicago. If you are listening to this podcast on the day that it drops, there are performances available from the Opera Festival of Chicago. Thanks, Emanuele Andrizzi, for telling us all about this Verdi bop. If you're also listening to the podcast on the day that it drops... You will have missed baseball's All-Star Game, which was on Tuesday. It was in Los Angeles. Here's the greatest thing about the All-Star Game. is It's not the All-Star Game. It's the day after the All-Star Game, the Wednesday. All-Star Game, always on a Tuesday. The Wednesday, there are no sports played in America. It is a sports-free day. Oh, it is a sports it is a sports writer's nightmare <laughs> because there's literally nothing hmm. happening on the day after the All-Star Game. I'm sure that's right? something to talk about. What about that stuff that's happening in Oregon right now, the World Champion Athletic Championships? Is that going to be happening? Is that professional sports? Or is that college? It's like the Olympics, but without the Olympics. It's not allowed to be professional sports. There's a law. We just (laughs) talked about it. It's it's illegal, Oliver. I don't think you're paying attention. No, no. No, let the the man talk. So (laughs) that would count. But it's also every four years. I'm talking about like a regular sporting event the day after the All-Star Game. Enough is enough. We need to get to this two-minute drill right now because I'm super confused. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything that you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Soprano Angel Blue has announced that she will not be performing in Arena de Verona's upcoming La Traviata due to the use of blackface in their much-discussed production of Aida. Quote, let me be perfectly clear, the use of blackface under any circumstances, artistic or otherwise, is a deeply misguided practice based on archaic theatrical traditions which have no place in modern society. It is offensive, humiliating, and outright racist. Full stop. Arena di Verona responded that the makeup was necessary because it is, quote, very hard to change historical productions 
because it means changing something that was designed that way. Boo-hoo. We decided to have a philological approach, and as long as we don't have a new production, we follow that philological approach. We must respect the historical truth. Sounds more like a tautological approach. Uh, Yusuf Ivanov <laughs> then fired off a retort in defense of his wife Anna Netrebko and her appearance in the production, calling Blue's withdrawal uh, disgusting and criticizing her for not objecting as vociferously to photos of Ukrainian soprano Lyudmila Monastirska performing the same role with similar makeup in June. And then Peter Gelb sent a strongly worded letter to Ivazov calling his remarks hateful. Quote, there's no room at the Met for artists who are so mean-spirited in their thinking. Gelb went on to say that the Met is considering its options over Ivazov's contract at the Met. On being the first black tenor to sing the title role of Verdi's Otello at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, friend of the show Russell Thomas told The Guardian, quote, I'm saddened that it's a significant moment. I'm sure there have been black men around before me that could have sung Otello. One black man in over 200 performances? I'm not sure that's something to be proud of or necessarily to applaud. In related news, it was announced that Clint Dyer would direct the National Theatre's production of Othello, making, marking the first time a black man has directed the play at a major British theatre. An email thread between opera administrators has leaked, revealing grievances held against the current generation of quote-unquote difficult singers in regard to their sense of entitlement, woke politics, and sensitivities to perceived microaggressions. Said composer-slash-vocalist Stephanie Sorovich Quote, society has pandered to young people for a long time, but now more than ever, with identity front and center on every campus, ad campaign, TikTok, youths believed they are entitled to respect from anyone without having first done anything to earn that respect. Included in the thread are Lori Rogers of Opera Saratoga, David Ronis of La Musica Lyrica, and Peter Cazares of UCLA. Long Beach Opera is set to launch the inaugural LBO Film Festival featuring film screenings of live performances curated by friend of the show James Dara and Bradford Nordine of the film production company Dirty Looks. Among the offerings of the two-day festival are a live-action music video of Schoenberg's Erwartung, that's one for Weston, and the U.S. premiere of Philippe Béziat's Galante Andy, the film of the acclaimed Paris opera production of Les Indes de Galante, that's one for Oliver. That's for me too, I love that production. In trade news, the Teatro Real de Madrid has announced that Gustavo Jimeno will take over for Ivor Bolton as music director starting in 2025. Jimeno currently holds the post of music director for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra and Luxembourg Philharmonic Orchestra. On the disabled list, the Bayreuth Festival has announced Cornelius Meister will take over as conductor of the Ring Cycle. Bayreuth said, quote, Pietari Inkinen has had to resign from conducting the new production of Der Ring des Nibelungen for health reasons. A serious corona illness makes his participation in the important orchestra stage rehearsals impossible. Meanwhile, the tenor whose new recording of Nessun Dorma outstreamed that of Luciano Pavarotti, Freddy Di Tommaso, withdrew from last week's first night of the proms due to a positive COVID test. The tenor solo for the Verdi Requiem was sung by David Jung-Hoon Kim, not Jonas Kaufman, who we presume also has COVID. Exit stage right, former Met stage manager and company manager Stephen A. Brown, who died on July 5th, 
Brown graduated from the Royal College of Music and first worked at London's National Theatre under Sir Peter Hall. He would go on to work at the Met for nearly 40 years before retiring in 2017 and was the stage manager for the Met's historic Otto Schenck ring cycle Mm. in the 1980s. And on this day, July 18th, in 1670, was the birth of Italian composer Giovanni Bononcini. In 1821, it was the birth of the French soprano composer and OBS Dark Horse champion Pauline Viardot. In 1877, bass baritone Nikolai Speransky, who created the role of Dodon in Rimsky-Korsakov's The Golden Cock, was born. <laughs> Happy birthday to British tenor Alistair Elliott, who shares a birthday with American composer Tobias Picker, both born this day in 1954, and happy birthday to British countertenor Timothy Wilson, born July 18th, 1961. That is your two-minute drill. Not a lot of opera recordings of Viardot's music out there yet, but that was Cecilia Bartoli and pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet performing her Avanez from uh, a recital that was uh, released as a CD, the Live in Italy recital, which those clips circulate on social media every once in a while because they are just having so much fun and the program's all over the place and Bartoli's doing her most Bartoli thing and it's <laughs> it's just a lot of it's a lot of fun. I recommend checking. <laughs> I have to say, I, I feel like the renaissance of Viardot started with Bartoli. I mean, people have been trying to get her music out there since before Bartoli, but I feel like since that French album she did with Myung-Wong Chung and the Live in Italy uh, album, like all of a sudden everybody wants to sing Viardot. Cecilia, we stand. Yep. We do. Ashley Hardgrave has her response to the Angel Blue on an Atrebko story, which we're going to get to in a second. Could we call it a kerfuffle? Is that the appropriate use of the word kerfuffle? I just, oh, I just want you three to help me understand the, t- the timeline of events. So basically, we, we mentioned kind of in passing last week um, that Anna Netrebko was once again doing uh, blackface for the Arena di Verona production of Aida, which in, in itself is not a huge surprise given everything about Anna Netrebko. It's practically her brand at this point to uh, do something controversial and, and you know, uh, annoy people. Especially in her attempts to stay relevant these days where she's performing yeah, right a lot less. I mean, that, that's not the newsworthy part. The newsworthy part is that she is like walking on thin ice with a lot of companies. And yet Absolutely. she continues to 
you know, put these images on Instagram and say things like, we need a black Aida for the best opera house in the world or something like yes, that. A beautiful yes. black Aida, you know? So Like specifically, yeah. like not just like, you know, not just like, you know, doing it and like disappearing, not saying, oh, I it was in the contract, I couldn't do anything. It's the bragging about it and the fact that a lot of her goodwill in the West has evaporated due to um, everyone now being very, very, very firmly aware of her ties to Putin. Um, There's just so... a gleefulness in how she's like spitting in everyone's face. But that was not well received, Weston. <laughs> it was not well received at all, which as it should not have been, because, you know, it, 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 everything she says is atrocious pretty much universally. But that prompted Angel Blue to speak out and publish this uh, this uh, little a letter on her social media saying that she was backing out because of the use of blackface. Of La Traviata. La, of La Traviata at Arena de Verona, yes. Um, and so, and basically that set off this whole cascade of um, every bad take you've ever seen on the internet just coming up and just bubbling through the cracks. People who've never been into an opera in their life, life but are on the weird sort of, you know, alt-righty fringes of the internet coming for Angel Blue. You never know when as people you might are going to pop out of the woodwork to defend blackface. <laughs> like, yeah. like Grace Bumbry. <laughs> Grace well, that was that was Bumbry. the big surprise, yeah. right? I, I feel like the response from most opera singers, except for predictably Anna Netrebko and company, uh, and by company I mean her husband, um, uh, Grace Bumbry was kind of the weird exception. Um, she said stuff about how, like, when she was, you know, at, at the prime of her career, she gladly jumped into, you know, different ethnicities to perform white characters, black characters, Asian characters, which in and of itself is, you know, also a problem. Problem because that's also yellow face, which we should be trying to get away from as well. Um, but it was, I think, it, a generally old fashioned take and a, a bad one from uh, Grace Bumbry. But because of that, more people started coming out to defend. Peter Gelb came back and reiterated his opposition to Anna Netrebko and uh, her husband, Mr. Netrebko. Who, uh, and it became. Nobody asked, nobody asked him. But he, <laughs> Absolutely not. But he felt like he had to stick his nose in it. And say something against Angel Blue as if Angel Blue had made any comment about Anna Netrebko. She was talking about the production. She did not say, because Anna Netrebko is doing this, I'm doing this. No, that's not how it went down. But you see... and that's the thing, right? It's become it's become on the pro Anna Netrebko side and the pro blackface side, which are one and the same apparently. Uh, it's become not just like an ideological thing; it's become an attack on Angel Blue specifically, uh, and that's the saddest thing about this for me. Uh, very recently, I think maybe yesterday, all of her social media accounts went dark as of recording this episode. Uh, who knows if they'll well, be back that, up anytime that's soon? That's all they have. Like, look at the right. thin gruel mm-hmm. that Verona had to to defend themselves that they couldn't the that they couldn't possibly mess with the makeup in a decades old Zeffirelli production like I'm sorry that is the most absurd thing I've ever heard it was very funny too because our, our friends at Opera Wire asked I want to say it was Teatro Real de Madrid I, I, yes I, it was check me Madrid. on that uh, they, they specifically knew that uh, Madrid was doing a production of Aida that was also a historical production the last time it was put on was in the 90s they had blackface then they sent a message saying hey, are you going to do blackface this time? And they're like, no, of course not. It's not a big deal. Just don't do it. There is nothing harmed or lost in removing something as offensive as blackface. Why don't we listen to Ashley so that like George can take all of this in 
and then we'll come out of that and um, change the subject. How are we still? Why are we, what year? <laughs> I've read all the reports and the Instagram posts and the Opera Wire articles and the Opera Wire exclusives and the New York Times recaps. And yes, I've even seen our poor misguided legend Grace Bumbry plead scolding Angel. Ma'am, good night. Your Elvira is legit, but this is disappointing. This whole thing is heartbreaking and it's maddening and it's exhausting. So I'm just going to talk to a few folks right quick to our friends in Verona. No, 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 just no. Miss me with that. Miss me with your philological defense. You're dying on a hill that this 2002 production must be desperately preserved, maintaining the elements of lo those yonder two decades ago. Look, in 2002, I was wearing rhinestone low-rise jeans. We all make mistakes. We grow, we change. We understand when a mistake makes us look real effing stupid, and we do better to stop embarrassing ourselves. Blackface was a tradition in opera. So was castration. We bringing that back, too? I joke, but I'm not kidding. It's really not that hard. Side point, in your written defense, quote, what you call blackface, end quote, is a particularly egregious and cowardly semantic distancing from the problem that you are in fact creating. Grow the hell up. Mr. and Mrs. Natrebko, that's not your embrace of the practice that surprises me. It's the fully weaponizing vitriolic attack towards those actually affected in a desperate quest to clutch relevance in your anemic, debilitated careers that truly demonstrates who you are. This isn't about you. Very little about opera is anymore. Miss Grace, I know what you were trying to do. It did not succeed. I really hope you stop doing things like this before we further lose another hero. Miss Angel, there's an army of artists and fans alike who support you. You did what you felt was right and a multitude of us happened to agree. Brava. Thank you for your convictions. Stay off socials for however long you need. We will be here rooting for you when you return. To my friends in the Black community, I am so sorry. I'm sorry that this is happening in 2022, for Christ's sake, and that it's everywhere and it's dominating our circles and you're having to hear about it day in and day out. I know you're tired of teaching and I know you don't need my sorries. You need action. And I am very hopeful that we will get more movement out of this conversation. Opera gatekeepers house runners, show runners, administrators, this is for you. You need to get your literal houses in order. Be public, be on the record about this practice and it's hopefully lack of place in your shows going forward. You've been at the center of bellyaching think pieces for three decades on can opera survive? Is the art form dying? Whatever will we do? Well, guess what? You have a generation of incredible artists like Angel, ready, and willing and waiting to keep the thing that we love alive. When they happen to have the audacity to ask to be acknowledged and seen for who they are, to be respected and treated with grace. They are the ones you've been waiting for. And they're asking for common sense in return. Seems like a decent deal to me.
listen and grow, or they will make this new world without you. Opera community, this is on us. It's on all of us. It's up to us to refuse this behavior and to push towards a future where we hold the unrepentant to account. Listen to those who are most affected by these historically harmful practices. Engage with places like the Black Opera Research Network to encourage this conversation, not just in the U.S. where it's needed, but also worldwide where it is also clearly needed. There's a movement called Hashtag Blocked by Anna. You can find them on Custom Inc. They're raising funds directly for Opera Ebony. Buy tickets for theaters you know have done away with this practice. Hell, buy tickets for literally anything Angel Blue books next. Stevenson once remarked that it's far easier to fight for principles than to live up to them. Angel Blue did it, and we have to live up to that too. We simply must. Yeah, I... I I did. I thought philology was the study of postage stamps, <laughs> but it's um, it's it's actually the study of languages. So even still, has nothing to do with like <laughs> the argument that that um, Barona is 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 making here. Trying to hit us with those fancy words and hoping we wouldn't notice. <laughs> Perhaps something was was lost in in translation. The, the the fact of the matter is, this is the Zeffirelli production from over twenty years ago. Um, we shouldn't be doing Zeffirelli's productions even if they're not in blackface let alone if they're offensive <laughs> like they are now right like the, these should be consigned to the dustbin of history all of the stories we're talking about today seem to be tied to this same topic in a way uh, this topic about race and like the old guard and the gatekeepers and ashley makes the point that it is up to us to refuse this to you know we let opera completely go away for a year and now that we're trying to bring it back let's let's get rid of some of the stuff we didn't need you know now that we're trying to reinvent it mm-hmm. and um yeah then we have these people who um i don't even know who they all are they're young artist program <laughs> directors they're teachers they're administrators who are on a listserv who are talking to each other complaining about about no. the youths. About yeah, kids about these the youths. Yeah, get off of my opera lawn. <laughs> Which is particularly galling to me just to think about if you have a young artist program that has no young artists at it, what do you have? Like you have a uh, you have a suite of offices. <laughs> right. You have no chorus for you, your porgy and you best. Have, you have no chorus <laughs> for your porgy and best. The, like these it's talk about entitlement. Like the entitlement to treat young people trying to establish themselves in careers like dirt and to work them into mm-hmm. the ground and to pay them pennies for that labor. And this is coming after or a couple... ask them to pay you. Or, yeah, <laughs> in some cases. And it's not surprising to me that after a couple years of having to mostly take on other work besides singing, people are w- not willing to be treated like that by something that is supposed to be a career. You know, some of this right. is a problem with arts funding in general. That's a systemic problem that... You know, people are never going to be able to get paid what their what their skilled labor is strictly worth. Let but, me go back right. to one of the quotes that was on this listserv, which was, youths believe they're entitled to respect from everyone without having first done anything to earn that respect. The fallacy of that argument is just, it's so upsetting, right? People, because what that person is saying is, we shouldn't respect other human beings. People, that, yeah, that's really what people saying. are not in, that people are not inherently entitled to respect of being treated <laughs> as who they are. They have to are. earn it first. They have to be. <laughs> they, have, 
They have to make it through my... They must solve my riddles three. They have to let me misgender them all the time. They have to pass death by Arya first. <laughs> it's it's really frustrating. And I, I will say um, that the, these screenshots are floating around all over the place. The worst comments are clearly from whoever this person is, uh, Stephanie Svorovich. Um, the other people on the, uh, on the email list... It, it, uh, the way it's presented on some parts of social media and on the internet are out of order. Right. So it's hard to say right. who's responding to who and to what degree of bad their responses are. So I would re- really strongly encourage anyone looking into this story to really like, you know, look at as much as is there, but realize that there might be some context missing. Definitely. But con- that being said, definitely context missing. But at the minimum, the people who are on this thread, none of them have said, hey, wait a second. You're yeah. wrong about that. Like you, you should think about it a different way. Something like that to come to the defense of the young artists who, or, they, or dare they I say, on, you, know? you know what? No one is saying. You know what? Maybe we should just have this conversation on the phone. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, Steph- uh, Stephanie Svorovich, I think, is the one who like seems to be the the most uh, out there. Um, and but the but the fact of the matter is, like, but... the, this is the job of these administrators is to handle these kinds of disputes and to exactly to, to put. <laughs> Like unknown, unnamed singers all on blast. An entire generation of young singers on blast to me says that really there might be something else rotten in the state of Denmark. Like no one, no one is looking to the leadership of opera companies for great examples of how to deal with personnel issues. We've covered the reasons why many, many times on this show over the last couple of years. And so yeah. maybe, maybe some people on this thread should look in the mirror first about what they can be doing better to yeah to improve. And why the, one, people might have issues with what's going on right now. One of the funny things about it, though, is that they're talking about like gender and pronouns, and yet I think three of them have their pronouns in their email signature. Right. <laughs> of course, they were made to do that by HR or something. But I, before we move on to the final topics here, I just want to say support to uh, Russell Thomas and to friend of the show Marisol Moltavo, uh, who are both dealing with this whole issue of. Russell Thomas singing Otello and Marisol Montalvo uh, coming to the defense of Angel Blue. I see their social media. I see the hatred that they're receiving uh, just because they are, you know, calling for this abhorrent practice to end. Uh, Why do you have to defend it? Why? Why? What, What do you have to gain from seeing somebody in black makeup? Your imagination is that small that you can't, imagine that the character is the character that they are just because mm-hmm. this, the set design, the singing, none of that helps you. you know? It's inconceivable to me. I, I, I have to wrap this segment up. Otherwise, I think my head is going to explode. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Time to wrap the show up. I, gents, I am so rarely exhausted by recording this show, but Man, the stuff we talked about. The bad on takes the will take it out of you, George. Re- I really, they yeah, really yeah. were. Yeah, we're going to kick it off with Oliver Camacho, as always, with a good call or a bad call. Uh, mine is a good call. Um, Matteo Berrettini, the Italian tennis player, uh, is collaborating with Hugo Boss, and he's now a Boss brand ambassador. And they say that <laughs> Matteo captures the spirit of the collection <laughs> as he inspires others with his strength and determination, embodying the idea of being your own boss. <laughs> could boss me around anytime he wants. Matt Cummings. <laughs> okay, George, get out our checkbook and get a payment ready for to the estate of Shirley Verrett because I found my holy grail this past week. I want to shout out the site 
Opera Depot, um, who posted a pirate of the of a live Aida with a complete Verette Amneris on it. Um, the rest of the recording is a bit of a mess, but she is just as good as I always imagined it would be. Um, they, I also, if you're not already a member of Opera Depot, you should get on their mailing list because every week they have a free recording of old school pirates that you can download and add to your library for additional listening pleasure. Weston Williams. Well, uh, they've finally done it. After two years of renovations and millions of dollars, uh, the Sydney Opera House finally has a place with listenable acoustics. Uh, <laughs> and really, let me tell you, when your opera house is shaped like a sailboat, it really is uh, that hard to get something to sound good. But according to all news channels, they've finally done it. The uh, the uh, concert hall specifically has finished its renovations, and now it is apparently good. Well, good. I have a good call as well. The last thing I saw, and the almost the last thing I saw in London was a production of Anything Goes at the Barbican Theater. It's one of the best theaters in London, by the way, Barbican. It's one of the few that's actually air-conditioned. Anything Goes, classic Cole Porter musical. This is a revival from Broadway of about 10 years ago with a brilliant cast, amazing singing, live orchestra. And boy, if you want tap dancing, the Act One finale, totally mind-blowing. Anything Goes at the Barbican running through the summer if you happen to be in London. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell, and he's at normwaddell.com. Again, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow if you listen on Apple Podcasts. You just hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Emanuele Andrizzi, and your co-host, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you search the new images from the James Webb Telescope for the origins of blackface. We're back with an all-new show next week. Plus, you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more philological racism. Join us.